I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Hello and welcome to the Fried Egg Podcast. My name is Garrett Morrison. I am here today with Andy Johnson. Andy, how's San Francisco? Revealing my location. It's uh, it's delightful to be out of winter, and uh, it's cool. It's just nice to be out, seeing some some golf courses and seeing some stuff, and uh, being somewhere where you can do that and and not be really cold. Yeah. Uh, well, well, it looks lovely. In any case, we are here today to talk about. A West Coast location. Pacific Northwest locations. Shared Pacific Northwest location. Yeah. Well, is San Francisco in the Pacific Northwest? Some can say it. Consider <laughs> it. Who who would say that? I don't know. Okay. It's, it's somebody, you know, intelligent people would consider it. So, okay. you know, Midwesterners, it, naive Midwesterners would, would consider it. Anything that's not the Southwest or Southern California is the Pacific Northwest. I think. Yeah, here. I think so. that's that's true. It's, it's uh, <laughs> if if you have redwood trees, you're the Pacific Northwest <laughs> in my book. So we are talking about Bandon Dunes, obviously that that little known resort on the Oregon coast. And today is the third of our Bandon deep dives. We've done Sheep Ranch, and the last one we did was Old McDonald. And today we're going to dig into Bandon Trails, which was the third course that was built at the resort. You know, we're doing these in reverse order. And, and so that's why we're at Bandon Trails now. Designed by Bill Corr and Ben Crenshaw. It was built in 2003, 2004, opened in 2005. Some of the associates on this project included Tony Russell, Jim Craig, David Zinkend, Jeff Bradley, kind of a murderer's row of, of shapers and, and great architects in their own right. Um, at this point, just to kind of situate people historically with the Bandon Dunes project and where Bandon Trails was in that, Bandon Dunes had opened in 1999 and had been a sensation. Pacific Dunes opened in 2001, I think it was, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And that too was a sensation, right? Immediate entry into you know the top 20 in the world, and Bandon Dunes had become a really, really big deal. You know, if you can imagine when Bandon Dunes just had one course, it was, although it was an incredible course and everybody knew about it, it was just one course way out in the middle of nowhere. It was like going and finding the the great up and coming band at, uh, at, at a local dive bar that, you know, and then when Pacific Dunes is when they started playing at like re- relatively known locations and yeah. on a tour in cities and then... I think, uh, you know, Pacific Trails or, or Banded Trails, Jesus, Pacific Trails, Banded <laughs> Trails is where, you know, kind of probably it launched the resort into, you know, is, you know, the, and the subsequent courses really launched the resort into a whole new stratosphere of superstardom. That's when they started playing arenas. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that that is the context in which Banded Trails came about. And I think there was a lot of pressure on it. Because Bandon Dunes and Pacific Dunes had been so well received. Both were on the ocean in these spectacular 
dune environments with great cliff top holes and, and everything like that. And people knew very early on that Bandon Trails would be a different kind of property. It wasn't going to be on the cliffs. It was going to be inland. There were parts of it that were even going to be in the forest. And so there was quite a bit of pressure on Corin Crenshaw to sort of live up to what Bandon Dunes and Pacific Dunes had been. Now, okay, so Bandon Trails was different in a couple of ways. One way, obviously, is is that property that I talked about. Another is that Bill Corr and Ben Crenshaw were very well established at this time in their career in a way that Tom Doak and especially David Kidd were not when they built the first two courses. So by this point, Corin Crenshaw had built Kapalua, Sand Hills, Friars Head, Old Sandwich just before Bandon Trails. And so, you know, they were already incredibly well-regarded architects, maybe the best regarded architects in the world of golf. And here they come to do trails. I think it's important to note here that this is the first time that they worked with Mike Kaiser. Yeah. Which we then see, you know, they they were the first course at Sand Valley. They were, you know, they did Cabot Cliffs and who knows what, you know, they might do in the future with with the Kaisers. But, you know, the you, this started the core Crenshaw relationship there, which we see more and more of. And obviously they continue to work with Tom Doak and David Kidd. But this was a, a significant point in in terms of them working with the Kaisers and, and building their most you know, publicly popular courses, you know, generally come from these big resorts and the Kaiser resorts are some of the most popular golf destinations. So this is, you know, Corin Crenshaw, you know, Sandhills and Friars Head are, are courses that nobody's going to see. You know, this yeah. is, this is a golf course that people could go see built by Ben, uh, uh, Ben Crenshaw and Bill Core. And, and this is really an incredible era, era for their architecture, because I think most people would agree that Friar's Head and Old Sandwich are both among their best courses. And that that is the time in their career when they came to Bandon and built their first Kaiser golf course. And then since then, at Bandon, you mentioned some of the other courses that they've built at Kaiser Associated Properties. They did Bandon Preserve, and then they did Sheep Ranch. And so yeah. now at the Bandon Dunes Resort, Corin Crenshaw are the dominant architects. You know, Tom Doak has two 18-hole courses there too, but you know, Kaiser obviously liked what he saw from yeah, the trails they got, project as of now three of the six courses all right so that's all to say that there was quite a bit of excitement about this project and some trepidation on the part of mike kaiser and probably on the part of corin crenshaw as well that you know this wouldn't work out as well it wasn't it wasn't quite as splashy and exciting seeming as the first two bandon dunes courses were where you had up-and-coming architects and you had these incredible sort of mind-blowing properties right by the sea you know where is this new course that's kind of in this forest land uh area how is that going to fit into this resort and uh so recently you talked to bill core and in fact this episode just came out a couple of weeks ago it came out on february 1st so this is not that long after it but you talked to bill core about abandoned trails and he told a great story about essentially how the concept of the course design came about how they worked out how to tie together the property and some of the decisions that went into that and we thought we would replay that clip here now if this is really fresh in your memory then 
it's about nine minutes and 30 seconds long. So, so just skip ahead if you want, but even if you've listened to this once, I think it's really worth listening to again, uh, because to me, it's just so interesting. The whole thing on Bandit Trails was was really illuminating. Yeah, very much so. Okay, so here's that clip. Abandoned Trails. I'm uh, I'm quite spitting about that place, and you know, I think it's at the resort. It's got its its cult following there uh, among a lot of golf courses that are right on the ocean. And I would love to hear a little bit about the constructing the golf course and connecting those very distinct different areas of of the course, the different ecosystems, if you would say, you could say the ocean, the dunescape ocean holes with the meadow holes, with the forest holes, and kind of how you guys creatively weave that journey together. Well, Andy, it was abandoned trails began when Mike Kaiser called and, and, uh, he, I remember quite well, the conversation, telephone conversation. He said, Bill, I'm thinking about doing a third golf course at abandoned dunes. He said, it will not be on the ocean. So you and Ben may not be interested. He said, but I would just like to have the conversation to see if you, if you might be. And, uh, if you are, would you come and take a look at the site? And I remember then, Andy, I mean, just saying, Mike, yeah, absolutely. We would love to come see it. I've seen Bandon Dunes. I've seen Pacific Dunes. They're just fantastic. We'd love to do that. And it's not like the site has to be on the ocean. It's not like we have to say, oh, we've got to have the best site. If we can do something that's... Uh, that you and we and hopefully others will think complimentary to the whole golf experience there, then let's take a look at it. And he said, okay, come on, let's go. And so went out and and did look at the site. At that particular time, Andy, uh, Mike, and Howard McKee, you know, McKee's pub, Howard McKee, who's since passed on, but um, – did all the planning and permitting and everything for Bandon Dunes and for Mike and was a fabulous architect too, brilliant guy. Um, but they had they had thought that Bandon Trails was, would be all east of the big dune ridge back in the forest. And that dune ridge is the dune ridge that runs through from the hotel, really, the lodge, all the way across, you know, like two at Bandon Dunes plays into it, and then 18 at, at, at Pacific Dunes plays along it, and old, and old Mac plays over it on the third hole. So that's the Dunes Ridge, and it'd be east inland of that. Yes, but it, it extends down the coast. It's just a giant dune ridge there. And so originally... Howard and Mike said, let's, let's build it back in the forest. It'll be more protected from the wind. And um, I went out there with that uh, understanding. And I went back and I wandered back there as best you could. It was very hard to get through because of the trees and the gorse and things. There were trails, though. <laughs> there were both animal trails and a couple of hiking trails that went back through uh, there. And um, I would just look at it. I, I went out for a number of days, and but each time 
I was staying in the lodge there at Bandon Dunes, and I would walk out. And each day, I would walk out and I'd look at the dunes, what's now number 1 and 18 at Bandon Trails. And there was a trail that I walked on through those dunes, and I walked out through what's now number 5 and number 17, the two part threes, there, what we call the meadow area. And then I'd walk and get and go around the bottom end of the big dune and back into the, the forest. And each day, Andy, I'd, I'd come back and I'd go, I could see, I guess, putting it all over here in the forest. And then one day, Mike Kaiser was out there and Howard, and I just remember looking at both of them. And I go, you know, guys, this is, after all, called abandoned dunes. What if we start in the dunes and work our way to the forest? And Mike was going, well, I kind of like that. I might, how are you going to do that, though? And uh, I said, well, I don't know. But it might be interesting. I said, the more I've walked out there, there's three distinctly different environments. Dunes, again, what we call the meadow with the beautiful, but the beautiful trees and the knick and the ground vegetation and sand. And, and then, of course, in the Pacific Northwest forest. And so I'm not quite sure, but I think maybe there could be a way. And Mike said, well, how are you going to get over the big the big ridge? And it's, I'm not sure about that either, Mike. I said, I know we can go at the bottom end of it where it's it's much smaller, which is down where 6 Green is and 7T. So that was a big linchpin. Is- that you could get around that way. It's just how you were going to get back across. And um, But the more I just wandered out there and wandered out, and Ben came out, and we just kind of, you know, we looked at it, and um, it just it just seemed certainly to me and and Ben was in agreement about this it could be interesting to tie those three elements environments together and um and Mike was so as he's always been so supportive and even though it didn't fit what he was thinking of in the beginning he was open to it and Howard McKee who had permitted everything there and Howard was Howard, whom I just absolutely thought was one of the most amazing human beings I've ever met, talented people. But I would have dinner with Howard quite often, and he'd go, Bill, I don't know. I just don't know. He said, he said first of all, he said, we're getting ready to dedicate a lot of this dunes area into preserve. And, uh, and he said, secondly, he said, that area where you go through, you call the meadow? He said, that may be the prettiest property on this entire all abandoned dunes site. You know, he said, I just don't know how you're going to do golf out there. He goes, but well, maybe you could convince me. And uh, Howard, too, was open-minded. And the more we looked at it, the more we tried to piece some holes together in the routing, he, he said, all right, all right. I remember distinctly him calling me. They were met me out there where the old road that used to go in to band, the main road into abandoned dunes. You hit over now on the third tee and the 18th tee and, and the, Howard and Mike are both going, you're going to play over the main entry road. Go, well, we do it. We've all seen places you do it a lot and they go, okay, that's, that's okay. But Howard came out there, Andy, and he just said, Bill, you have 1000 feet. 1,000 feet 
from this road toward the ocean. He said, that's it. You can't go one inch more. He said, I've talked to the, you know, all the agencies, the, the state agencies, the county agencies. We can get you that much, that strip of dunes, which is exactly where one and a two and 18 are. He said, so you've got that. Nothing more. And then he looked at me and he said, and if you mess this up in this meadow out here, I'm just going to kill you. He said, this is my favorite place on the entire resort. And I said, Howard, look at this. Because what's now the fifth hole, the little part three, the green was there. You were telling earlier about greens. It was there, the big trough in the middle of it. We just graded off enough to put some pins on it. The green at 17 was more or less there. And all the stuff in between. So it was It was like, Howard, we're going to build two par threes in your meadow here. One going this way, one going that way. We'll do very little disturbance. And he goes, okay. <laughs> so anyway, that's, that's when it linked together. And people say, well, where did the name trails come from? It came from trails because there were there were hiking trails out there, particularly through the meadow part, the dunes and the meadow. But there then there were animal trails over the big dune ridge and back into the east. So I used to literally walk around all those trails, and so when Mike and uh, everybody was talking about what what should the name be, I just go, well, there's a lot of trails out there. So they said, all right, band of trails. All right, so so that's how Bandon Trails became Bandon Trails. Now, one thing I think that didn't necessarily come through in Bill's memory of the construction is that tying together these three environments was a really big concern during the project. Uh, they were they were actually very worried about it, and this is something that comes out in in Stephen Goodwin's book Dream Golf that. You know, I've been mentioning from time to time in these uh, deep dives, they were actively thinking like this might not work. We might not be able to do this. I think that's the thing. Sometimes when you have a golf course that moves into different distinct environments, you can get a feel of disjointedness and yes. it cannot tie together right and it cannot blend together right. And obviously, you know, a good example of a golf course that does it really well is one of Bill Core's favorites, who he's talked about a great deal about the routing, how he is enamored with it is Cypress Point. Mm -hmm. But then there's, you know, a, probably everybody here has has played a golf course where you, you all of a sudden are like, God, this this is out of the blue. I didn't know this was coming. And I don't know if I necessarily like moving into this environment. And then you go back into a different environment. And you're like, ah, that it would have been nice if they could have just had that the whole way around, you know? And I think that's, that's something that a lot of courses face and, and tying together um, different environments. It, it obviously at Banded Trails, there's three of them. They have the dunes, the meadow, and the, and the forest. And, and tying together those parts and making it feel like the same golf course and feel you know, like a, you know, a, a well put together story. It's just like if you're writing something, it's sometimes hard to change topics, right? Mm -hmm. And and tie those topics together, back together. They do it so well here. And I think part of it is the way that the golf course starts and ends in one spot and then visits and, you know, and revisits the different other areas. Yeah, very successful. 
and not easy to do. I mean, it seems that when you just play the the finished product, it seems like it was easy. It seems like it was natural that it would be this way. But I think it can't be overstated, like how hard it is to pull this off and, and do it well. Cypress Point, you mentioned, is an example of a course that obviously does this well. Now, there was another course that was specifically on Mike Kaiser's mind when Bandon Trails was being built as an example of a course where it's not as successful tying the environments together, and it's very close to Cypress Point. Yeah, Spyglass. So Spyglass is obviously always the the victim of this. Uh, of uh, It's a perfect example of this, is where you play the first five holes, and they're spectacular, they're on the ocean, you know, and, and then the rest of the round, you're climbing up a hill in a forest and there's artificial ponds and, and it just, you're just kind of like, oh, that, that's a different golf course. And I always say it should be just flip the nines. It would get a lot better. Mm-hmm. It would be a lot more coherent of a story because you'd start up in the forest and then you'd play down and then back up into the forest. Um, but like this, that's a good example of a golf course that just doesn't feel um, together, jointed um, in its current routing and, and, and journey that you go on. Like it, it wouldn't be the way, you, as Bill, Bill always says, you know, he talks about routing a course the way you'd walk a course the first time, a property the first time. And I don't necessarily think that'd be the way you'd walk Spyglass, but I certainly think it would be the way, a very similar way you'd walk banded trails. Right. Now, I think that an underrated part of what makes Spyglass not quite work, and I don't want to dump on Spyglass too much here because I think it's a terrific golf course. You lived right next door to it for a while. I know. Yeah. So I, I lived at Stevenson School, which is a boarding school that literally is right next to Spyglass Hill Golf Course. Stevenson School is right between Spyglass and Poppy Hills. So it was Poppy Hills on one side, Spyglass on the other. And yeah, I, w- I was really close to it. And in fact, actually, it's it's great at Spyglass because there are little trails that go through the course that are public. You can just go walk through that golf course. It's not a problem. And we did it all the time. You know, my kids were young. We'd put them in the strollers and we we would be off and taking these wonderfully beautiful walks in the forest, which is an incredible environment. And so, you know, I don't want to say that Spyglass Hill is a, is a terrible golf course. It's really not. It's very, very, very good. But it doesn't quite link up those two different parts of its identity. And I think that one reason for that is that the holes that are in the dunes are different in more ways than the holes that are up in the forest than just the fact that they're in the dunes. The holes in the dunes are shorter. They're quirkier. They just look different overall. The the shaping is kind of different. The greens sit in different types of places. The green shapes are very different. You know, the, the fourth green is this crazy, like, you know, narrow, long thing that you, n- you never saw Robert Trent Jones do something like that again. And for some reason, he was inspired to do so in those dunes. But then when you climb back up into the forest, it, it just it gets a lot more conventional. And so it really does give you that schizophrenic feeling. Now, at a place like Cypress Point, the holes that are back in the forest or in the dune environment or out on the ocean cliffs do have a sense of unity because the execution of the architecture is similar across those environments. So even if they're in different types of landscapes, they still feel like they're part of the same course. I think, yeah, I think that there's also like a unifying strategy. They 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 have coherent holes that, you know, kind of fit alongside each other and 
and and blend together well in terms of like they you know you have the the rhythm and when you go into spyglass like you go it's it's all those short holes you're talking about kind of quirkier holes and then you you go back up into the hill and you just feel like you're getting bludgeoned with a hammer <laughs> but you know there's it loses some of the kind of up and down nature that some of the really great courses have where you have a mix of gettable holes and, and tough holes. And, you know, golf course can be hard like this is not, but it, it's a, it's the idea of some flow in it where you feel like you've got some good chances and, and especially chances. If you pull off shots, like there are holes out of spyglass where if you hit two great shots, you're you're just like hoping to make a par after two great shots, you know. Uh, like the the eighth hole is one that comes to mind. Like I don't know what you do there. You're just you're just praying to hit two good shots, and then you might have like forty feet on a pretty severe green to make, you know. And uh, it you know I think that's kind of what what happens. Whereas like I think one of the things overarching with Core and Crenshaw that I've I've noticed is like if you execute, if you hit shots you get really good scoring opportunities. And and I think that's something like where you can really get cooking on, on core Crenshaw courses if you play well, but if you're off, you know, it's not, it's going to be a tough day. Like it's not easy if you're off. This episode of the fried egg podcast is brought to you by zero restriction. So on our trip to Bandon Dunes last November, we encountered all kinds of weather. We played Bandon Trails in torrential rains and gale force winds, and we played Old Mac on a beautiful, clear, but somewhat chilly day. So we needed performance apparel that was really versatile, that could handle anything that the Oregon coast threw at us. Thankfully, we were outfitted on this trip by Zero Restriction. Zero Restriction makes excellent cutting-edge outerwear, and we actually got to try a couple of new items from the ZR collection on this trip, including the Mayweather Pullover and the Wave Hybrid. Both of these pieces have high-tech fabrics that are water-repellent, moisture-wicking, and all that good stuff, and they're nice and stretchy and comfortable. And finally, both items can function really well as either a top layer for a mild day or as a middle layer for those colder and wetter days. You can find the Mayweather Pullover, the Wave Hybrid, and all sorts of other apparel right now at ZeroRestriction.com. And if you use the code OLDMAC at checkout, that's one word, all caps, O-L-D-M-A-C, OLDMAC at checkout, you'll get 20% off at ZeroRestriction.com. Let's get back to how Trails ties together these different places. Okay, so... We've, we've mentioned that there is a coherence to the architecture, whether it's strategy or shaping. Trails has that across the three different areas. But I, I think that there are other things that make these different environments feel like they're part of the same course. One is the way that the holes are connected with each other and how thoughtful the transitions from a green to the next T are and how often those trails between a green and a tea take you from one environment to the next. And so there's kind of a gradual fade or a gradual blend. Think of the trail from the second hole, which is in the dunes to the third tee, which is starting to be in the meadow with some trees around you walk off of that second green and, and you're still in the dunes. You can kind of see what's ahead of you. You can kind of see that there are some 
trees and a, and a different type of terrain. But that trail just so beautifully, like gradually fades from dunes to the flora of the meadow environment. And it just makes you feel like they're part of each other. So there are these segues. If we're using a writing metaphor, you need segues between different sections and paragraphs. That's what these trails do. I think another way you could put it is like when you're somewhere where you have a great DJ, um, they're playing all these different songs, different, you know, sometimes different genres of music, but the way they kind of blend the two songs together at the transition, think of that as the trails at, at Banded Trails, where it's that kind of in between the two songs where you get, uh, you, you know what's coming but you're still finishing out the other song. So you know that's ending and you're going and it's that in-between phase. And that's kind of the way trails works with these in-between, these holes that go from one area to the next. Yeah. Okay. So there are the connections between the holes. And then there's the overall sense of coherence in the story of the course in its routing. I've heard you talk about this before. What, what's your basic take on what the story of this course is? So I think one of the things with with the resort, right? Uh, all the holes on the ocean are are kind of interconnected and you're you're at this resort and you know you're at the resort when you're at these courses and you're you're right there, you're on the ocean, there's infrastructure, there's clubhouses, there's everything. At Banded Trails, you kind of go out to the edge of this ocean side and you start and what it is, is it's a story of departure. You you leave the resort and you go almost, in, it's real, you know, as somebody who shoot, shot out there, I took a hiking trail and, and it is, you go on almost a hike out there. It, it definitely has the most vertical climb of any golf course out there. And you go up into the forest, but like you're leaving and it's very peaceful. Everywhere else you hear the crashing of the waves on the ocean. At trails, it's silent. And it's really a peaceful place to be because when you're down at the resort, you see people, you see your, you know, you see other holes. You get up at the top of the tra- of trails and you're isolated and it's and you really feel away and you feel this, you know, departure from this resort that you've been staying in the resort's wonderful, but it is nice to get away. And I think that's one of the things trails has got this somewhat cult following. And I think, you know, some people have trouble synthesizing why it's their favorite place and you get to leave society for a while. And that's really delightful. It's a delightful escapism um, that it offers guests uh, out there. And, you know, you get to go on effectively what's the most beautiful hike that you could create out there. It's interesting that the resort sort of feels like civilization now, right? The place where Bandon Dunes is, Pacific Dunes, and uh, Old McDonald, all of that really does feel like a bustling city at this point. And so Bandon Trails is a departure from that. It is more isolated up there. It is There's more solitude, and there's this sense that you know what you're hearing is is no longer other people and vehicles and stuff like that. It's, it's the sounds of nature when you're up there. But just think of when Bandon Dunes was just one course. The whole thing was a departure then. There wasn't this sense of bustle or, or civilization as much at the resort. And so maybe what the function of trails was, was that the resort was starting to take on this character of a really busy place, right? You know, 
Pacific Dunes and Bandon Dunes in the early 2000s were packed just all the time, all day. And so here comes Bandon Trails offering a reprieve from that and a little sense of what the overall feel of the resort was very early in its life. So it's kind of appropriate that Trails came along when when it did. Well, I think that also, you know, I think that leads into some of the real popularity today and and how it's grown over time is that people get there and they're you're part of the resort and you know you're part of this it's like a dis it's not disneyland like i'm just to say like a disneyland of golf right Mm -hmm. and this is the one where you get away and you get you get and that's such a nice feeling and whether you know i think that is it's something that's become more and more part of its identity as the resorts continue to grow after it, because old McDonald is definitely part of that bustling system and sheep ranch is a little bit disconnected, but still really part of that system. You can see all the other courses, you get that ocean sound, that ambient noise. I think one of the things that when you, if you go out to trails is the, the, the solitude of it. And away from the ocean, the ocean is super loud. When you get away from trails, you notice its absence. Yeah, that's the thing. I one time I played a, a golf tournament at uh like a state am at Beverly in the city. Uh-huh. And I was there so I was there for four straight days. And it's one of the loudest courses in the country. Like it's got city roads, it's got a railroad, it's got uh, it's right in the flight path of of a major airport and it's so loud, but after four days you get used to it and I remember the next day or a day after that, I went to a different golf course and I was like, God, it's so quiet here, you know? And I think that's something that happens with trails is that it's, it's in, in and it's so distinctly different. That's, I think the magic of it is for the resort is that it is, it is so unique to the other courses. Like the other courses are all different, you know, they have their own identities, but they do sit on ocean dunes. They all share a very similar setting here. The setting's completely unique. And it, and that is something I think that makes it such a, you know, have such a cult following. Okay. So you mentioned that it's a story of departure, but then it's also a, a story of return, right? So it's departure and return. And the key is that you don't start already departed. You start with something familiar you start in the bustle of the rest of the resort with the two holes in the dunes with one and two and then you gradually fade into this sense that you're away and that you're you've departed by working your way through the meadow and then up back ridge and into the forest where you stay for seven holes and then there's a turning point where you launch off of the ridge spectacularly with with uh the 14th hole but a controversial hole which we'll we'll talk about later and you're back in the meadow all of a sudden and then the story is you know kind of gradually fading back into the dunes and then you fully return there by the 18th hole so i i think the way that these the dunes environment at bandon trails functions is sort of like a a frame story in a movie and and novels sometimes use this device too. And what, what a frame story is, is basically a separate set of scenes that take place at a different place in a different time. And often what happens is that the characters in the frame story 
are telling the story that constitutes most of what you're reading or watching. And so an example of this is like Saving Private Ryan. The frame story is the older Private Ryan in basically the present day, the 90s when the movie came out. What a pull. Um, right. Going to the cemetery. Do you remember this? Yeah. He goes yeah. to the, it's the beginning of the movie. That's the beginning of the movie. He goes to the cemetery and then flashes back, remembers, I think, I don't think he's telling the story, but D-Day, right? And, and the whole movie is set in World War II. But then at the end, it goes back to the older Private Ryan at the cemetery. We return there. That's a frame story. It brackets the story. Another example of this is The Princess Bride, right? With uh, uh, Peter Falk, I think it is, who plays the grandfather, and then Fred Savage as the the little boy. I'm less familiar with that one. Princess Bride? Really? I, th- I don't gotta, know. I gotta get I think you to watch Princess Bride. It'll be familiar to a lot of people who are not familiar with Saving Private Ryan. I'm trying to cover all our bases here. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so the frame story is the grandfather reading the story to the little boy. And most of the movie is that story that he's reading. Right. And, and you return there a couple of times throughout the movie, but mainly at the beginning and the end. It is this bracketing frame story. And so for me, the the, the first and last holes at Bandon Trails are like the frame story, right? This is we're in a familiar kind of time and place, but we we know where we it's are. It's almost like a dream. Yeah. And then we then we transition. Yeah, the rest of the course I feel like is the dream. Yeah. It's like you're it's your waking con it's like you're going to sleep conscious and you're waking conscious if you consider if you thought of it as a dream. Yeah. No, I love that. I think that's exactly what it feels like. Now, people may think that we're getting a little bit high on our own supply here. Yeah, they're going to be wondering what we smoked before this. (laughs) This is getting very dorm room. Um, (laughs) But it really does feel that way. That that is what we're trying to explain is the the ineffable feeling of, of magic at Bandon Trails. This course has it. It has that something that really transports you. And that's why I love it so much, right? That's why I love this course. I don't love this course because it's a collection of the best holes at Bandon Dunes because it's not. That's Pacific Dunes, you know? I love it because it has this feeling to it that is dreamlike, that is story-like, that's transporting. That's what it does so well. Yeah, I think that's the that is it. And I think there's some other qualities to it. You know, if you play it in the afternoon, one of the things that you get out there is you get whether you, you whether you're a photographer that recognizes this stuff or you're just somebody that you know you get that unbelievable filtered light through the trees out there that you don't get anywhere else you get yeah. you get that like kind of misty filtered light in the afternoon out there that adds to that aura and and you're going through this journey and it and if you're playing in the afternoon I which I recommend everybody if you're gonna do an app like if you're doing a morning afternoon round do an afternoon round at, at trails because in the afternoon that light that afternoon light hits and it comes through those trees and it's just like everything turns gold and it 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 just adds to you know if we're going to use dream it adds to that dream that you're having out there and um it's it's super neat i think like and what you said is is right like when i think about you know, they, they have some weak holes at trails, like, and it's not, not at all the best collection of, of golf holes from a, from a golf architecture standpoint on the resort, but it, it, it's got the best story of any golf course out there from, from a storytelling standpoint. And it, 
the holes are really good and, oh, and yeah. some of them are absolutely great like a good half of them i think you could say are, are great golf holes but there are courses at the resort pacific dunes certainly but maybe also old mcdonald where if you're going hole by hole if you do that kind of head-to-head thing people do but what's the best first hole what's the best second hole i mean we did this exercise with the dream 18 but it, it, it trails finish had so many that just finished second or third you know in, in people thought we like- didn't like trails when we put out that episode, they're like, oh, seems like you don't like trails. It's like, no, it just is not built to do well in this kind of exercise. Yeah. But if you d- if you flipped it and said, how would you split 10 rounds between this course and this course, it would win a lot. Yes, exactly. Let's talk about. Um, so we've talked about the dunes holes. Let's talk about the meadow holes. That's the next thing you transition. So obviously you move from two to three and that's one of the cooler transitions of the golf course you play you know to the dramatic par three that you kind of plunge down into the bottom of a dune and then you're down in in, it enters you into the meadow i will say this really quickly if that damn road wasn't there it'd be so much cooler (laughs) it already is extraordinarily cool but it would you know it's like what i think one of the coolest moments on property but it would be so much better if the road wasn't there. And, and I kind of hate the road. It makes me angry no, every that's, time I see it. It's too bad. Yeah. And, and yeah. And, and the road was there before the course was built, too. That was the entrance road. And it was a discussion on the design team and with the ownership. Like, isn't it kind of weird, guys, that we're building holes like right by our road? <laughs> you know, what are we doing here? But it certainly wasn't planned that way. There is a different way to get into the resort. There's a road that comes straight out. Yeah. It doesn't do kind of this wandering path around that this road does. And and you kind of wish maybe that they'd close it down. But that's obviously very much easier said than done. You, you can't I, think, just... I think you're going to get the logistics guys on your ass here. Yeah, you Garrett. can't. It's not realistic, Garrett. Why are you, why are you even talking about it? Yeah. Need to get a, get a big infrastructure talk on, you know, maybe that'll be part deep dive, part six, abandoned infrastructure. <laughs> really, really deep dive. We'll bring Tron Carter in as a guest. <laughs> infrastructure week on the Friday <laughs> podcast featuring Tron Carter. Yeah. So. Yeah. Let's make it happen. Why not? Um, the Meadow. The Meadow is one of the coolest places ever. I mean, it's just so beautiful there. It is completely unique. The The plants that they have around there, I don't know all the names. I think there's one called Kanikanik, which is a great name for a plant. But there's, you know, there's all this different, all these different little things that you see. There's so many different colors and textures. It's just a great place. Bill Corr loved it from the start. He wanted that and had to fight for that piece of land. Beyond the the unbelievable aesthetic that the meadow has it's it's well, it's so beautiful um the fauna flora make that and the trees make that you know aesthetic so unique beyond having this beautiful aesthetic um as as pretty of an inland aesthetic as you could have it also has some of the best ridges that you could ask for in terms of golf ridges that, you know, they worked into the holes to be in very impactful areas off the tee and at greens where greens sat into, uh, you know, below or, uh, on top of, uh, these ridges. Incredible land for golf. And, uh, you know, if we're talking about ridges, there's one that kind of cuts semi diagonally across the fourth hole, 
what's such a great thing about that ridge on the fourth, and it's why it's you know I picked the fourth and Old Mac. I sometimes regret that decision for the Dream Eighteen. I, I may have I talked people it. into this. I may have. I, uh, think it, I love the fourth at Bandon. Um, the diagonal nature of it, and and Old Max is diagonal in a similar way. But what that does, which I think is a, is something really important in t- in the modern game of golf, is it makes long hitters particularly have to hit the ball the right distance and on the correct line. And that's something that Bill Core talks a lot about. He talked about it in the lead up to Trinity Forest. Um, is the idea of hey. You know, you're going to have to pick how far you hit it if you want to hit it on a certain line. And there, you know, if you hit it a little too far on the left line, which is safer, you're going to run into the bunkers. Mm -hmm. If you hit it a little too short on the right line, you're going to not get over the hill or you're going to tumble into the right bunkers. You have to really merge. You know, you a great tee shot is different based off of what distance you hit it, which I think is really neat. Like, you know, it's not just one singular line. It is, are you hitting it 300? Are you hitting it 250? Are you hitting it 275? These are all different windows, which is really neat because of that ridge. And then this, and then the green sits in a beautiful little pocket. Which is a theme in this part of the property. The green sites are incredible. The 15th green is is one of the great green sites on the on the resort that's it, it just is perfectly kind of blended in there i i don't know how much dirt they moved to to make that green bill bill said it wasn't very much i think he didn't say it on the pod but he was we were talking about it before it wasn't very said, much yeah it was a green that he brought up himself the fifth green i know uh which has that big trough through it was there Yes, that that's what that's what Bill says is is that was basically just sitting there, and the discussion was about whether they had to tone it down a little bit because because it's it is it has big undulations, but that was essentially sitting in the land waiting to be discovered as a green for a short par three, which it is now. The fourth hole, I've come around on this hole. This is not one that I liked initially. I thought it was too hard to get over the ridge. I thought it was just a blind second shot, no matter what. But you know, when I revisited it. I saw that there were these different ways that you could negotiate your way around. Since you brought up holes that upon first sight sometimes rub people the wrong way, should we should we talk about another meta hole, the 14th? I don't think it's just first sight that people don't like this hole, hole on. I, th- I think there are people who have seen this hole many times who, who despise it. It's, so the 14th, you come out of the forest. It's the first hole out of the forest. And obviously, you've got the, the famous bench up there that, you know, Mike Kaiser sat at and, you know, and uh, gazed out upon his, his domain. Yeah, and yeah, you know, some some line that's probably been changed a little bit over the years. To, yeah, maybe to make so. a little bit more dramatic. But yeah. um, <laughs> but but it is an incredible view. I mean, it's you can incredible. see why, you know, somebody who came there and looked out at the view of the ocean and the dunes and all the variety of this property might think to himself, yeah, that this should be this should so, be uh, a place people play golf. The first time I played Banded Trails, I played by myself late in the afternoon. This was like the day before the world shut down for COVID. Like and I was in Bandon. It was the first time I played trails. I teed off like two hours before sunset and was just, nobody was out there and I was just booking around myself. And honestly, I didn't know where anything was. And I walked from from 13 up to 14 to that exact spot. 
And I just was like, oh my, it was a beautiful night. And I was like, oh my God. And then I read it. So like, I will say I had a similar experience. <laughs> yeah, the same experience. Yeah. So, so, I did not can't, know can't it was really there. really make fun of it. Yeah. yeah, I know. I didn't know it was there, but like, it was like a very <laughs> similar experience. But it is like, you know, I don't know. It's a, it, it, a little over dramatic. It's great. Well, there, there's that view. Okay. So that that's the view from the T. It's absolutely amazing. And so you're immediately primed to, to think that this is a great hole you're about to play because look at what you're playing off of. But okay, so here's the hole. Um, it sits on a pretty severe side slope. There is a little area on the left where if you place your tee shot there, then you will stay up high and you'll have a shot into the green. But most people's tee shots run down to the right. Okay. And when you're and down on the right spot. and hitting up onto this green, I don't think I've really seen somebody hold the green from down on the bottom on the right. And that's because this green is a tabletop. On the right are bunkers and a severe drop off uh, that, that goes with the general movement of the land. And then on the left, there is a another drop off that's that's uh, doesn't go down as far, but there's a definite kind of rejecting contour on the left of this green that goes down into this little gully and then the land moves back up the hillside. And so people's objection to this hole is, I think, twofold. One, it's too hard to find the ideal position on your tee shot to, to be up on the left and and have a view of the green and a reasonable angle in there. And two, it's just too hard to hold this green and once you're kind of in various spots around it it's it you can go back and forth all day now i'm just putting that out there as the argument against this hole i'm not saying i necessarily agree with it now i'd say from the left side if you if you i've been in the boat where i've been over left after my second shot i've been in the boat where i went right off the tee and hit the green you know it was a really good shot did you hit the green no, this was the first time I played it. I didn't. Um, oh, okay. I've been in the spot where I was in the ideal location, and I missed the green from the ideal <laughs> Actually, location. I remember that wedge. That wasn't your it best was a wedge horrible shot. shot. <laughs> but but the point I think is like if you miss back left, it's it's a pretty manageable up and down from there for par. Like I think it, so too. I think that that is, is the that is the best counter argument that you can make that shot from back there. Yeah. Like if you, so if you miss right off the tee, which is the natural place to hit the ball, there's, you know what I love. Here's what I like about the hole a lot is that it is a very friendly tee shot. If you consider friendly fairway, like if you think a success of your tee shot is finding the fairway, you're going to love the tee shot. But what I like, what I love even more about it is that it, it is a hole where the fairway isn't necessarily friendly. No, definitely not. And that's not. one of the things. I just think the magic of a golf hole, I think just one of the greatest, one of my greatest joys. And I think, I think this comes if you, if, you know, I used to play strictly for score really early in my life. And that was what my, my round and how I thought of things was, was through a lens of this. And when I stopped caring about score as much because I stopped playing competitive golf, what I started to realize was my favorite things happened when I playing, when I was playing a course for first, second, third, and in really great courses for the, you know, if you've played somewhere 10 times and then you, they still trick you when you get tricked 
it's such a wonderful thing. It's like oh, I thought thought I could hit it over there, but I can't. <laughs> you know, that is a a magical feeling. I think if you, but you know, you, it's hard to feel that way if you're really really you know grinding on score on your personal score. And I think this is a hole that's so brilliant because they give you all the room in the world over there. And it's super short. You can make a two here if you're a long hitter. It's two is in the cards. But if you're if you out of position, four is going to be very, very hard to make. Well, so I don't know if this hole necessarily tricks you, does it? I think it's pretty clear to most people what you need to do. You need to try to stay up left, but it's just really hard to do that. Here's the thing, though, is you you know that the only place... The only place you can really ruin the hole in your mind is left, is if you hit it left. And the Where, ideal if you go spot, into the forest on the left. In the forest on the left. And 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 it's it's just like the almost like uh that famous hole at Woking, the fourth, right, with the railroad and the center line bunker. Uh-huh. Right. Here they have a ridge right in the center of the fairway, right? That 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 ridge then pushes you further and further offline. But if you play along the railroad at, at Woking, uh, at a boundary line, so just think of the left as out of bounds. Is it, you know, you're, it's going to be hard to find your ball over there. And they give you all the space in the world right. I mean, you can hit a really bad shot right, and it still finds that fairway over there on 14. And you know, they give you all the room in the world over there. And, it, and, and whether you, or not you admit it, subliminally what happens is people bail out. You know, it's very hard to get yourself to hit it up the left. And that's where, you know, whether or not people admit it, they chicken out a lot and they and they bail right. And you face the penalty for bailing right. And people what people get upset about is that they can't hit the green from the fairway from 40 yards. Mm-hmm. And you shouldn't always be able to, especially on a 320 yard hole or whatever the yardage is. I, I, the yardage is irrelevant, right? You know, if you if you can hit it up there that close, there should be some penalty for being in a very, very bad position. Yeah. And if we're talking about course management, if you're down on the right, what you need to do is have a club or or a distance where, you know, you're going to be long, you know, where where you're not going to be short in the bunkers on the right, because that's really, really dead. Um, And you can hit that shot. Now, I think that over time they have softened that green a little bit. So maybe the recoveries are easier than they used to be and maybe some people form their impression of the hole earlier on when the green was more severe apparently the hole is really similar to 10 at riviera yeah but but so much more extreme in in its land the land is what the the riviera has the extreme bunkers and more extreme green contours and really hard to hit from the right yeah it's the same thing though it's the same concept yep you know if you can hit it pin high left, you're you're gold. It's just it's just, you know at, at Riv you've got palm trees like palm tree bushes that you could get in. Here you've got a forest. Here's the difference. I think here's the difference between 14 at Bandon Trails and 10 at Riviera, and that's that it's a much more common outcome on the 10th hole at Riviera that a player ends up left of the green. They don't have out of bounds. They don't have out of bounds on the left. You have room on the left. And uh, you, you don't have the whole fairway pushing your ball to the right. So it's a much more common outcome to be up the left. And I think that that's what that's that's the argument 
uh, I think that a lot of people have against trails is that if you're thinking about the percentage of times that the outcome is that you're up on the left and you have the ideal angle, it's pretty rare. That said, I saw you up there once and I've been up there once the first time I played trails. So it does happen. And so the question is like, what percentage is, uh, is acceptable? You know, if we're talking about a hole where the, there's an ideal side of the fairway or angle, at what point does it become a bad golf hole? Because that outcome is too rare. And I I don't know. I, I think it's an open question. I think that if every hole abandoned trails were like this, it would be a problem. But Personally, I I don't have a big issue with it being the one hole on the course that's kind of like this. The other thing I like about it is it introduces an extremely high variance in scoring without a a ton of lost balls. It does this without like a a huge water hazard in front of the green, like a island green. It creates a extreme like if you get out of there with a birdie. You know, if you're playing in a foursome, somebody's making a five or a six, you know, and it's a short hole. And I just think that it's, I I think sometimes, like if you think about like a, a golf course as a, a, you know, golf course is kind of like a defender, right? The 14th is kind of like your Bruce Bowen. He's like, you're the guy <laughs> that's just like, he's, he's, is it, uh, or is it your Patrick Beverly? Yeah, he's jabbing, jabbing at your sides. It's, he's your chippy. It's, it's the chippy defender that gets under everybody's skin at one point. Yeah, it's the and, and it's just a, yeah, it's just he just you're. It's just an irritator, you know. And some people can have a, a wonderful time and have no problem. Like people have games where they have no problem with Bruce Bone and torch him. But then there's some other days where they just they just get under their skin and get, you know. And I think that's the way you got to think of this. Is it's like. It's the guy that you want on your team, but you don't want to play against. Yeah. And the, and the guy, when you play against this kind of player, you think you should be able to take advantage. I mean, Bruce Bowen wasn't the most athletic player in the world, right? Yeah. And I think you have that a lot of people have the same reaction to the 14th hole. We just compared a golf hole to Bruce Bowen, by the way. Um, why am I not uh, you feel doing like you well should on be this able hole? To bully it's a sh- short bar four with a hugely wide fairway. It's drivable in a lot of situations when the wind is going the right direction. How am I taking a seven here? You know, that's that's the feeling. Okay, so Bandit, we should probably talk about. We've spent twenty minutes now on on fourteen abandoned trails, but the forest holes. The forest. Or do you holes. want to talk about the crossing? Because the crossing's cool too. Five and seventeen uh, in the meadow holes, abandoned trails. One of the best spots in golf. Fourteen is an interesting hole to talk about because there's a debate about it. But I don't see any argument that 15 isn't just an incredible, wonderful golf hole. Same with 5 and 17 and 3 and 4. 6 is cool. I think 6 is a cool hole, too. 6 is so cool. High, low fairway. Very subtle green. Probably the flattest green. Very hard green to hit because of the angle, if, especially if you're on the low side, on the left side. Now, 16 is is. Definitely not one of my favorite holes. That's that's one where I actually think this is not a very good golf hole. It's a par five that just goes straight up a hill. Seven fits into that boat too. The, the hard holes out there are the ones that go up the hills. And there may be holes that you, especially the first time you play them, you might not remember much about them. You might remember that seventeen goes uh, 16 goes straight up a hill, but 
I think nine and ten also are ones that don't stick super firmly oh, in the memory. Come on, twelve, nine. I love nine. I just love the the green. I love the back there, all in the trees. I think the ridge off the tee on nine's cool. I think you're shortchanging nine. I I really. I enjoy nine. I just, I'm just saying it's not a hole that you remember particularly I after remember your first it time playing it. I think that's like the most peaceful spot. Like you get back there or 11, that or 11, you know, the uh, nine and 11 stick out to me as two places where like I, I kind of pinch myself um, as to like, God, is this really, you know, I don't think, I don't think the best, I think the weakest holes at trails probably are the forest holes in general. But I will say that, you know, the meadow is probably my favorite, but the forest part is where I, I feel like the most alive. Yeah, I mean, I, I was working through all the holes that might be considered less than absolutely exceptional to get to holes like 8, 11, 13 that are incredible. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think the meadows probably to me the best golf holes. But the, I think the, in there, I, I, I love the forest holes too. I just love the, that getting up to the top, you know, you climb up on the seventh and, you know, I think the seventh is a decent hole um, and you get up there. And then I think those, that being up there, you feel that like sense of accomplishment that you've almost made it to the top. And then you get to just explore back there in the forest. And, and I think one of the things for me being somebody not from the Pacific Northwest is like. That's such a unique type of golf and, and just setting for golf with those big trees. And um, yeah, I, 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 the 11th is so cool too. the green site down by the pond. That's that's just like and it's so fun looking back up up the hill and, and having that, you know, it's just such a gargantuan, you know, like feature that goes through it, that ridge that you tee off over. Um, but yeah, I agree. I, I, I it's. It's like in every other whole course in a way where like, you know, like it has like these like just absolutely spectacular holes. And then there there's some holes that, you know, aren't spectacular, but they're still very good. There, There's usually at least one thing, a couple of things about each hole, even the less memorable ones um, where when you play it a second, a third time, you discover it and you and you say to yourself, that's really clever or that's really fun. Um, okay. So that's banned in trails. We, we should probably start wrapping this up as a, as a kind of closing thought something that I think is remarkable about the history of this course and, and, and kind of how the idea developed as it got designed is that there was a time when they were working with this property at the very beginning when Mike Kaiser and, and Kemper sports, which manages the, uh, manages the resort, we're thinking that Bandon Trails might be the first course where they would introduce golf carts. They, they were considering that because you can see why. It's, it's a pretty extreme property. It's a tough walk. It's spread out. And so they were considering maybe offering golf carts for this course. They ultimately chose not to. And I think that that was such a great co- uh, decision because this course is really a tribute to the beauties and the wonders of walking. This is, it's everything that's wonderful about taking a walk or you could even call it a hike. Um, the things that you discover along the way, this is something that Bill Core talks about all the time. You know, he and Ben Crenshaw are all about 
walking. They walk everywhere when they are exploring a site. They don't take their vehicles. They walk and look and talk and walk and look and talk. And this course, more than just about any other, I think, brings forward that part of golf. Yeah, golf carts would have really taken away from just the whole journey. 